pray. So uh, last week, based upon, you know, we kicked off this 21-day thing, this 21-day fast, uh, and uh, that opened for me a discussion of the importance of spiritual disciplines. So that was the topic last week that we, uh, that we put on the table, spiritual disciplines. Discipline is obviously fundamental to being a disciple, right? I mean, nothing could be more basic to the idea of discipleship. And of course, as I said last week, Jesus is not calling us to be fans. Jesus is not, he's not calling us to be friends. He does say to us, you know, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends because the, you know, the, the, the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I, everything that the father has made known to me. So I now call you friends. We are friends with Jesus, you know, but it's not like picking up friends on your Facebook account or picking up friends on your Instagram or, or you know, all the other social media type of stuff. Um, Jesus is calling us to be disciples. And disciples are people who embrace disciplines. And disciplines are the very thing that produce fruit in life. Can I get a witness, Tim? Are disciplines important? Amen. Disciplines are vital, okay? And so giving is a discipline. And so we looked at uh, uh, some spiritual disciplines as they are laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And, uh, and in, that, in, that, um, in that passage of Scripture, the Lord identifies three specific areas of discipline that he expects us as his followers to practice. In Matthew 6, he says three things. When you give, okay, and of course, everybody who preaches this will want to call attention to the fact that it is when and not if, right? When you give, so it's a given. When you give, and then he says, when you pray, and then he gives us some encouragement and some direction for all that. And when you fast, and so that's really kind of what got this whole thing, brought this whole thing to mind, that all these three things are areas of discipline that the Lord expects to be a part of the life of someone who is his follower. And there is a principle behind these three spiritual disciplines, okay? And here it is. This is the, this is the good news. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In other words, God is very attentive to these things that go on in our life that we don't make a big fanfare out of. And that's the whole point in Matthew chapter 6. That he's saying, you know, when you pray, you don't want to make a big fanfare and go out in places where everybody's going to, you know, hear you pray and, and know what a great prayer you are and all of that. He says, go into your closet, shut the door, go in, talk to your father. And the father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so it's a personal thing. It's a pers- not that, Which is not to say that public prayer has no place. Obviously, I just prayed publicly, we just praised publicly, we had, you know, there's a, certainly a public expression to all of this, but there is something of, of rich significance and value in those things that really only the Lord ever sees. So he talks about that, he says, when you, when you give, when you, when you give to the needy, you give to the poor, he uses the expression, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, that, that's how much I don't th- want this to be something that is on display. Same thing with fasting, um, when you fast, you know, you don't want to go around town looking like this. Oh, my God. You know, you, don't, you, don't, you just don't want to uh, wear it. <laughs> you want the Father who sees in secret to reward you openly. And he says, if, if, we, if we do these things and our motivation is to be seen by people, 
then we have our reward. If that's what I wanted, then that's what I got. But if I will avoid that, that type of, um, if, if I will avoid that kind of attention, or not seek it, or not be interested in having that kind of attention, but instead will do things, and there are a zillion things. This week we were looking in the, in the men's Bible study um, for a moment at Romans chapter 12, you know, and it's in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I beseech you therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your body, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, other translations say, which is your spiritual act of service. Be, and be no longer conformed to the world, but be trans. You, you probably know the passage, right? But, it, but our life is to be a living sacrifice, which doesn't mean that like I should go around, you know, like self-flagellating or inflicting pain or hardship specifically on myself so that I'm suffering for my sins. That's not it at all. But it is that I am surrendering self-will, the rule of self-will. I'm setting that aside so that I can serve God and serve other people. And as long as self maintains control over the throne of my life, I won't be very effective in terms of my service for God or my service to others. It's only when self is dethroned, and that's really the essence, isn't it? That's really the, the heart of the sacrifice that God is looking. That I would make accommodations, that I would put, you know, there, that I would put me second or third or fifth or whatever, you know, and, and put those, I, I see it all as applying first and foremost to the concentric circles of life. So if I'm going to love anybody, if I'm going to serve anybody, if I'm going to sacrifice anything for anybody, my wife ought to be at the top of that list, right? I've gotten 40 some odd years of faithfulness and friendship and, and, uh, and all of the help and everything. So she ought to be right there and my family ought to be right there. The people that are, you know, near, near me in life, you guys ought to be right there. I ought to be willing to make some uh, accommodations, sacrifices, whatever, you get the point. So, um, so when all these things, the, uh, the, the principle is the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, the, uh, the, 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 word for the word that is used, steward in the New Testament, means a manager. And what we are to understand ourselves to be is a manager or a person um, who takes proper care of something that belongs to somebody else, okay? Because you are not your own. Your time is not yours. Your life is not yours. Your stuff is not yours. Your money is not yours. In reality, God owns everything. It all belongs to Him. And we are allowed to use the things that he has given to us and abilities that he's given to us and finances that he's given to us and all the, you know, the things that, that we have in this world. But it is wrong for us to think of those things as being ours because in this world, nothing is really ours. Everything is a gift. Your health is a gift. Your life is a gift. Your family is a gift. Everything that you have at home in your refrigerator is a gift. Your, everything should be understood from that point of view. So a steward is a manager, someone who takes proper care of things that belong to somebody else. I took a strong concordance and I started looking up, okay, how many times, it, given these concepts, these, these, these disciplines that the Lord is laying out, how many times um, is the word pray in the Bible? 
or, the, or its related words. How many times? And, and I found out that it is mentioned over 500 times. So when Jesus says, when you pray, this is, this is meant to be a, a, a normal part of every... And, and I just kind of feel... You know, like, and, and if, if we could get away from prayer as like reciting my laundry list to God and get back to prayer where it's like, hi God, here I am. And I just wanted to come in and say hello. And I, I, and I just wanted to say how grateful I am for the things that you've done, the blessings that you've bestowed. And by the way, you know, uh, Aunt Agnes is still suffering. Lord, so we put that on your list. There. You know what I mean? But when it becomes this matter, when prayer becomes this, this um, interaction in which I'm thinking that it is my job to somehow convince God to do something that he doesn't seem to want to do, that really just undermines and, and destroys prayer. Right? And then I walk away usually frustrated, uh, you know, and so anyway, when, when, when uh, the heart of our prayer is more of a devotional type of a thing, more of a willingness, because literally, if, if you wanted to, um, you could stop whatever you're doing at any given point, get away from all the other things that are potentially a distraction, and if you were to just concentrate on the things that you have to be thankful for, it would take you hours. That's... That is absolutely the truth. You would start rolling over things, and yes, there are, there are problems in there, and there's trouble in there, and there's difficulties in there, there's struggles, and there's all these kinds of things. But you would find, man, I, I you know, like there's this, that old, Joe will remember that old hymn, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done, right? And there's this old hymn, beautiful old hymn about this whole idea. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. When you are something and tempest tossed, count your many blessings, Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And so when you look over your life and you start counting your blessings, you will really be amazed. And it just does wonders for your attitude, <laughs> right? To, to focus on the many ways that we are blessed. If anybody in this world has ever been blessed, man, it is those of us who live right here in this world right now. We are so blessed in terms of the, the ease and the type of life that we have. Anyway, so prayer, 500 times in Scripture. I did the same thing with the word love, okay? Love is mentioned nearly 400 times. Is love important in Scripture? Well, yeah, of course. But how many times would you imagine that the word give or giving is mentioned in Scripture? Well, you probably imagine, because I'm making a big deal out of it, that it's probably mentioned a lot of times, and it is. It is mentioned nearly 2,000 times. Huh? Jesus does so much teaching in the New Testament about giving. There are times when he's sitting there and he's just watching people like drop their stuff into the uh, offering box. And he notices this one lady who comes by and she drops two mites, Scripture says. And, and Jesus says, see that lady over there? Like she just gave more. Now, you can imagine you know, the, the Pharisees and the, the wealthy people are coming by and they're dropping in, you know, bags of coins or whatever they may happen to be giving, right? And here comes this woman, and she's got like a couple of pennies, as I, I think that's basically what is going on. But Jesus says, see that woman right there? She gave more than everybody because she gave out of her poverty. She gave sacrificially. She gave all that she had, whereas other people gave of what? Of their wealth. <clears throat> so 
Scripture, giving is mentioned in Scripture nearly 2,000 times. Why? Well, obviously to make us see the importance of giving. To make, because, because this whole aspect of giving is so fundamental and basic to who God Himself is, which I'll kind of go through in a few minutes uh, as we get there. It is so basic and fundamental to the very nature and character of this God who has redeemed us and is drawing us into the family. And the thing that he desires most is to begin to see a little family resemblance. Right now we're coming out of the other guy's family. And plenty of resemblance to that family, the fallen family, the Adam family, right? The Adam family, ba-da-da-da. Anyway, um, we thought, we'll have to do that some Sunday morning. <laughs> the new Adams family. But anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Sir. <clears throat> but it is so fundamental as to who God is, this whole aspect of giving, that he is looking to inspire and cultivate that in our life. And when he sees that, um, it, it rejoices his heart that we are Beginning, beginning to take on the family resemblance, beginning to, to look like our Father. I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture like that. I, I used this one last week. But there are three great principles regarding money and finances that we, uh, money and possessions that we should be mindful of. Number one, God owns all things. Number two, all things come from God. Number three, all that we are and all that we have belong to God. If, if that sinks down, if, you, if that begins to really take possession of your whole understanding of your life, and it should, because you have to re remember, I mean, just in terms of the nature of what salvation is, you died when you got saved, right? It, like, like, you didn't just get slightly revived or just get cleansed from your sins, the the act of coming to Christ is an act of death. That's what baptism is. I'm buried with him by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we also should walk in a new, kinds of, in a new kind of life. And so the whole idea behind baptism is I have died to the old man, died to the old life, died to the godless way of living that, was, that characterized my entire life up to the point when Jesus came in, and now I'm raised to new life. So everything else is gone. If any man is in Christ, he is a, a new creation or a new creature. The old has passed. Behold, all things have become new. That's a really important thing to factor in there, that I didn't have a life. I now have a life because Christ has given me a life. And so with that in mind, God owns all things. Everything comes from God. And, and God has a sovereign, a, a sovereign claim on all things. All that we are and all that we have belong to God. So God wants us to learn to give of our time, give of our talents, give of our treasure, and as we do these things, we're building increase for the kingdom of God. And as we, as we attend to these, these areas of spiritual discipline, um, God will reward us in kind. Here's David making a statement. Now, the, the scene or the setting for this uh, is, is 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Let's see. Yeah, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And David, as you know, had this deep longing and desire, passion to want to build the temple for the Lord. 
It was what I mean. He was he was so desirous to have the presence of God there in the city together with him after he had taken the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, and then it was and he knew it was claimed by God. It was going to be the great city, the the great capital of God's people. And so when David conquered it, and then he wanted to bring the ark up, and they 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 tried it one time and brought it up, but it got messy, and the ark started to stumble because they weren't doing it the way God had said to do it, and they weren't transporting the ark in the way that it was supposed to be transported. And this poor guy, Uzzah, because the ark starts rocking and the cart starts shaking, he goes up there to, to steady it, and he's struck dead. And it kind of freaks everybody out. David sends the ark back to Shiloh where it was. And, but a little later on, he gets motivation again, and he, they, this time they bring it up, and this time they're doing it right. This time they're doing it the way God says to do it rather than just do it any old way. And that's important too, that our lives are to be lived the way God says to live them as opposed to just any old way that I'm ready to offer to God. If you remember the sacrifices between Cain and Abel, Cain just offered any old thing. Abel offered the first thing, the firstlings and the fat. He took the best that he had and he, and he gave it to God. So David now um, has desired all of his life to build a temple. Here the ark comes up, but it's still in this curtain kind of a thing. And David wants to build a temple, but he's not allowed to. He's told that he's been too much of a man of blood and a man of war, and there's just been too many issues in his life, and so he's being, um, he's being ex- excluded from actually being the builder. His son is going to build the temple, and he's going to gather all of the stuff that's necessary. And so after, he, so he calls to the people to, to you know, bring together all of their stuff that they have in, in order to, to amass a, an offering and a collection for this temple that is going to be built. And then here's his response to it in First Chronicles chapter 29. He says, <clears throat> Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Right? So he was just recognizing the fact that we have, we've put together this incredible offering here. There's gold, there's money, there's all kinds of things that have been gathered. There's, there's all that we need to build this incredible temple that we're going to build to, you, to, uh, to be a monument to who you are and to our relationship with you. And, uh, and, 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 the, and it was vast, the amount of things that they collected. But he's, but he's identifying the fact that I didn't, we didn't give you anything that you didn't have already. We just kind of gave back to you what was yours. All right, so when we get into preaching and teaching about finances and giving and all of this, um, it's kind of an area that um, 
I know this is true just having talked to, to many, many other guys who, who pastor. We as pastors tend to avoid this area, right? Um, there's just always kind of a, a concern. I think, I think, as I said earlier, um, you probably could count on one hand how many times I've actually um, preached a message having to do with giving or tithing or um, financial stewardship or what have you. And, uh, and the reason, I think, that we tend to back off from it a little bit is because the topic and the scriptures that are related to this topic have often been terribly abused and terribly manipulated by lots of people in ministry, right? I mean, it comes to mind, you think of the, the TV pastor or the TV evangelist uh, who comes out with his like $2,000 custom-fitted suit on and the $5,000 Rolex and uh, he's got his Lamborghini out in the parking lot in the $2.5 million house or two, uh, you know, uh, somewhere. And he's now taking an offering for the private jet that he absolutely has to have in order to fulfill all of the calls of ministry that God places where God is calling him to. And, and, and there's just something about it that goes like, come on. <laughs> right? And, and, there, and there is the inclination, especially to the person that may still be on the outside and just be observing, not really have really found the Lord or understood like the heart of what, of what we are being called into. Uh, there's, there's an inclination to just think like, these people are all about money. This thing is all about money. And because of the reticence to want ever for that to be what we are kind of displaying, um, you tend to just kind of back off from that so that People won't come here and think it's all about money. It's easy to become skeptical, right? Here, this health and wealth and prosperity preachers promising instantaneous blessings. If only you will sow that seed of $1,000. And here's the tragedy of it all. The whole concept of sowing seed is absolutely biblical, right? It is an absolutely biblical truth that what you sow you will also reap. In other words, it is woven by God. Other, other um, religious points of view would probably call it something like karma, or what goes around comes around. Or, but the you know, Scripture says this, uh, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a person sows, that they shall also reach, reap. He that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so this concept of what we sow is an absolute true concept, but then it gets in the hands of somebody who you just are not sure, like, what's the motivation behind this? And it's all about money. It's all about if you sow that seed, that seed will then blossom. And, and, and I don't know, it just turns me off. <laughs> Big time. It turns me off. Although I, I understand and agree with the concept. And another, another reason um, why, or another thing that makes me particularly happy and thankful, is that I have never had to get up and cry and beg for money. Because money has always been provided. All that we have needed has always been provided, but it has been provided through the faithfulness of the people who were part of the church family here. You look around like what we have today. You know, for me, and I'm sure you recognize that, I'm always calling attention to this. Because I'm always... I'm, I'm talking about any time I walk through this place, I am blown away. Because I remember starting a church in 1988 in our basement with 
5, 10, 15, 20 people, and, and just, you know, like that, that's, and, and being perfectly happy and content to do so, thinking this is wonderful, you know. And then to, to see the different seasons where, you know, uh, people in our neighborhood got mad at us because you know, they didn't understand. It, it, people don't necessarily understand why you would start a church in your house in New Jersey. Let's face it, you know, New Jersey is not what you'd call like the promised land in terms of spiritual, this is not the Bible Belt. And so what, you know, we, here we are starting a church. I had a pool in my backyard, so we, we would have baptisms in the backyard, kind of like what we do here, and my neighbors just did not know what to make of this. So after doing that for a couple of years, we got some noise, then we're, we wind up over in White Rock at the elementary school, and then we wind up over in uh, White Rock in the, in the uh, kind of the community center there, and then this place opens up, and then here it is. And, and, so, and then when we got here, this place, it had a lot of needs, and it, <coughs> it was kind of run down, so we had a lot of things to do. And even in terms of, last, last week I, I, uh, I, I showed you uh, uh, something that I've been that has just kind of come my way, this whole thing with this Ringling Manor here in town and how, how this is all playing out. This very week, there are marked developments in this whole thing, in which, which indicate to me that, like, hey, this, is, this may be a real thing that God is doing. Like, I, I don't want to get into it right now, but, I mean, this piece of property is like, like nothing you've ever seen before. It is a local historical shrine, and... And the way that, they, that things are going, it may very well become ours to do things with as we go forward. And, and so it just amazes me what God can do. And, I, and you know, in saying that, I also want to, um, I also want, my wife is not here, she's, I think, working over with the kids or something. But <clears throat> I, I would really want to take a moment to honor my wife, because my wife is so fastidious and faithful, having to do with money and tithing and giving. I mean, she is on it all the time. Uh, you know, she lives for this. <clears throat> and, and I look at it, now I wouldn't be that way, because I'm not that much of a, like, I'm not that much of a, a micromanager. She, she is, uh, she's an organizer and an administrator. So when she has oversight over something, she's extremely mindful of all of the pieces, and then she is very careful to make sure that all of it is being done in a proper way. <clears throat> I'm much more loose just in terms of my own personality and way and what have you. But she has been so faithful. I don't think that anything has come through our lives in the last 44 years that we've been married that she has not faithfully taken what she what is the Lord's, and boom, given that to the Lord. And I'm saying all of that, and I'm particularly happy that she's not here so she doesn't have to be embarrassed by all of this, but I really believe that in many ways, what, where we are and what we now have and all that God has made available to us is God's response to that, of that kind of faithfulness, because that's how it works. You know, God has shown immeasurable faithfulness to us to come down into our world and to redeem us and pull us back into his family, draw us back, forgive us, and, and welcome us back into his family, right? And then as we begin to grow in this, and as we begin to gain real spiritual understanding as to what's going on here and what, what it means now to be a part of God's family, um, as, as God cultivates Christ-like character in us, He's, he, he is deeply desirous to want to bless the progress of that work. So anyway, um, <clears throat> so we hear, you know, there's a lot of teaching. It kind of goes off into, into different directions. Um, but here, the money that you give to the church, and, and, 
And let me say, if, if there was ever a church, this, you know, there may be churches where people would say it's all about money. Uh, that could never be said here. And nobody could, would ever say, oh yeah, Pastor Steve, man, he's, he's all about money. Right? That would, but there, I don't know that you could go to any church anywhere that I'm aware of and not see that your money's doing something. You know, a lot of places you go to church, you put money, and it's like, what happened to it? Who knows? What gets done? Here, not only have you built this, okay, and supplied for it, and it is without any debt. That's amazing, okay, that God provided this place in the first place, that we were able to fix everything that needed fixing and get it all done and put a lot of time and, and, and sweat equity into the whole thing. But to be here now at this time and to own this whole thing outright and to have not one dollar of debt and to have money in the bank, that's incredible. But that only happens because people have been faithful. And if, you, if, if you're not on board with that whole thing this morning, I hope that this will speak to your heart about what your pattern, let's say, of giving and financial faithfulness is. Because, again, I, 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 I don't have to get up and cry about stuff because it's always been there, but it's always been there because people have been taught. And many of the people who have been part of the church were taught by other people, and then their church went south or whatever, and they came here, but they had already been. And so I just feel like as your pastor, I ought to I take the responsibility and take the initiative to teach you what you should do with your money. Give it to me. <laughs> I'll do something worthwhile with it. <laughs> You'll just squander it. <clears throat> no. So the money that you give to the church ought to be used for supporting the needs of others, Acts 2.45, supporting ministers of the gospel, 1 Timothy 5.18, costs of owning and maintaining a place such as the place that we meet in, and to further the growth of the kingdom through outreach, Philippians chapter 4 and, 15, and verse 15. So the, this is what the money that people give. And again, there, I, I don't know of any places you could go and, and be more encouraged to feel as though the money that you are giving is actually doing something. Not only is it done here, and not only does it support me, which, come on, how worthwhile is that? Come on, right? But, it, but we also support missions works all over the world. So we send money to Haiti, we send money to Mexico, we send money to the Middle East, we send money to Europe, we send money to Africa, we send money to India, and support people who are doing great works. So, so what we are doing is we are sowing into the kingdom because, you know what, this is the only thing that's going to be around. Everything else is going to be like in the dustbin of history. All the other things that we would... I think are so important and you know require so much of our time and our talent and our treasure and all all the rest of it is you know going to be gone only one life so soon it will pass only what's done here for jesus will last right and so it's the, the wisest thing that we can do. And that's what I would want to inspire. I wouldn't want you to make you feel like I'm Pastor Steve and he's trying to get money out of my pocket again. No, I don't want your money for my sake. Honestly, I can say I want your money for your sake. Because when you are generous and give generously and when you are faithful in your finances, God is going to bless you for that. Somebody missed a great opportunity to say amen. You know? I'm... God is going to bless you. We'll, we'll look at places in Scripture. And although the concepts have changed, for instance, you know, obviously I'm not going to broach this subject and not go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi, the Italian prophet, right, Pastor Joe? <laughs> right, everybody goes to 
Malachi chapter 3, where he talks about the tithe. But the tithe is not the issue, especially not for us as New Testament believers, because the tithe is part of an Old Testament covenant. It is really not a New Testament teaching. But it is a teaching that draws its entire concept from something that, from, from a, a, a from the tithe, from the idea of the tithe, that being that in the Old Covenant, that was the way that people showed that they were being faithful with God, what God had given them. We'll talk more about them, talk about more about that in a moment or two. Um, so, where are we now? <clears throat> um, okay, so as your pastor, it's important that I teach the Word of God regarding this important matter for people who are new to the church, for people who are new to the whole idea of biblically-based living, okay, scripturally-based living, um, this is a major topic, and people would like to know, what should I give? What's the New Testament standard? And so, um, since we have been referring, and kind of like the, the jumping-off point has been uh, the Sermon on the Mount chapter, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 through, se- 5 through 7, let me go back there for a second, and notice the motivation behind uh, the, behind why the standard is being raised. Let's go to that passage of Scripture, I think Matthew chapter 5. Okay, now remember, this, what I was saying last week about the Sermon on the, on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount, in essence, is the upgrade from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. In other words, the New Covenant is not the Old Covenant. We are not Jews. We are not part of Israel. We are not required to keep the ordinances and statutes and rules of the Old Covenant. This is what Scripture means when it says you are no longer under the law. Those things are no longer applicable, but those things were all truths by which we would, there were examples by which we would learn even deeper spiritual truths. And the, and the tone behind the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying this, you have heard that it was said by those of old time, but I say unto you, And in every case, we'll look at one here. You have heard that it was said by those of old time, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? But I say unto you, love your enemies. And that's where, that's where, and and this happens again and again and again because the kingdom of God is different. And the kingdom of God is more excellent. And the kingdom of God and the ministry of Christ is more glorious. And so everything has gone up, all of the, the, the standard of the whole thing has gone up, whereas in the Old Covenant, you could get away with slavishly obeying the letter of the law because it was all about the law. And, and because it was all about the law and being the devious little type of, of creatures that we are, when something is present to us, presented to us in a law format, the first thing we look for are loopholes. Right? But it's just, that's just who we are. So, and that's the problem with law. Because when God gave law, we would look for some kind of, well, I'm, I'm kind of keeping it more or less, but I'm skirting it a little bit because that's what, that's what law does by nature. And that's when the law, God's ironclad law, meets our devious nature, we, it, it doesn't work. It does not produce the true fruit of righteousness that God wants to produce. And so here's one. This is, kind of, this is the, the paradigm, and we'll go, get into this and. We'll probably have to press the pause button, but I I, want to talk about this for a number of weeks. I want to make up for all these years (laughs) of not, you know, not haranguing you about about money and finances and all that. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, 
Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so according to the Old Testament teaching, it was perfectly reasonable and legitimate to hate your enemy. Love that person who was your neighbor, the person that you were connected with, but if that person wasn't, was an enemy of yours, it was completely within the, um, the, the bounds to just despise that person, to dismiss them, to dislike them. And, um, but Jesus adds now a whole new level of, of, um, of, of understanding or insight to this. Jesus adds a whole new perspective or a dimension of attitude and predisposition toward people. Hatred is ruled out. In, Jesus, in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no place for hatred because there is no place of hatred in him. Jesus condemns hatred because it is inconsistent with the nature of God. That's the deal. And you see that being presented very clearly in this passage. That's why I showed it to you. Obviously, this one doesn't have to do specifically with, um, with, with the issue of giving and all of that. But th- this is very typical of the entire theme or a style of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus is calling attention. He says, you've heard that it was said by those of old time that, you know, you shall, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoever looks upon a woman to, to uh, lust after her has already committed adultery. Oh, no, he's just raised the standard, okay? You could kind of get away in the Old Testament with not actually doing the act. In the New Testament, it is, not about, it is no longer about the act. It's about the heart, it's about the desire. And that's the whole essence. That's the whole focus. And that's where finances become such a big deal because finances is very much about the heart. Right? Where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. Right? So the thing that I find most value and most significant in this world. That's where my heart is going to be. And everything is all about the heart. Old Testament Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can even know it? So our problem is in our heart, but Jesus has come to heal that heart by giving it, but giving us an upgrade of, uh, of spiritual insights. And you'll notice that the reason why he says that um, hating your enemy is no longer something that can be condoned in the kingdom of God is because he says it is inconsistent with the Father because the Father makes his Son to rise upon the evil and good. And he sends forth rain on the just and on the unjust. So then he says, you should therefore be perfect. And when he says perfect, don't stumble at that word. He's really saying this is a product of maturity when as we come to know who our Father really is and what his nature really is, um, then that, that understanding is supposed to transform who we are and our whole, our whole understanding of how we are to act and respond to people, even if they're not people that we like particularly. Um, so let me just put, uh, I want to, um, one more thought and then we will, um, we will have to press the pause button. But as a New Testament believer, 
okay? You cannot even come to know God unless you come to know him first, foremost, and primarily as the giver. You must know God as giver before any relationship is possible. See, by nature, we tend to think of God as a taker. God wants from me. God wants obedience. God wants loyalty. God wants money. So we, we tend to think of God as someone who is implacably, constantly requiring me to do things that I can't do or don't want to do or what have you. We, in our, in our twisted, self-serving nature, see God as a taker. But the truth is God is not a taker at all. God is nothing but a giver. And it is not until we know him as giver that, that a relationship with him is even possible. Notice these verses of Scripture, and then we will turn you loose for Sunday afternoon. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? This is the, the most basic statement in the New Testament regarding what this whole uh, aspect of Jesus having come into our world. This was a gift that God was giving, an, a completely undeserved gift given before anybody even thought to ask for this gift, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Here's a, another one. In every case here, the, uh, the Lord Jesus and what he has brought into our world is spoken of as a doron, doron, or a gift. And not only a gift, but a free gift, specifically indicating this is a free gift being given without something, you know, without charge, so to speak. Something that's just simply being offered that everyone and anyone can have. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In, here's a passage that we were looking at over Christmas time. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gifts. We're going to look more at that passage because that has a lot to te- teach us in terms of New Testament giving. And then one more. You remember the story of the woman from Samaria? And when Jesus talks to her, says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you... A Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Until we understand what kind of a gift has been given to us, you, we, we won't have a relationship with God. We will still be thinking that God's a taker. It's only when it really comes home to my mind and to my heart what God has given so undeservedly and, and so generously and so graciously and so freely. And, you know, like it, like it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, many people, for a good man, someone might dare to die, but God has made known or demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this gift of eternal life, this gift of Christ Jesus, this gift of salvation, this gift of forgiveness, this gift of of mercy, undeserved mercy, all of this is like, it indicates to us the generous heart, the generous nature, um, the giving nature of God. 
that it was fundamental to put that piece in place because in the Old Testament, when it was law, people just misunderstood the nature of God. It seemed like he wanted something from them. He was demanding something. And it's true. He, he had laid a standard on them, which they couldn't keep. Anyway, so shall we pray? And uh, we're gonna, again, we're going to look at more of this and we're going to talk about more of this because as we go further, um, again, we have new people in the church and and again, I just feel like it's my obligation, my responsibility to teach uh, on all of this. We've had, as I said, we've had many people here over years who have been very, very faithful in their finances, and uh, that's why we have what we have today. And uh, and I thank God and I praise God for it, and, I, and I'm I'm grateful for everybody who's had a role to play in all of this. Many. I'm looking at the Gessler people over here, been with us for like 30 plus years, and different folks who have who have been on board with this. You guys, you know, Aaron, Carrie, Nicholson, your family, and just so many people who have been with us all of this time. Well, it has just simply been Aunt Deb over there and just people who have been part of this, this church family for 30-plus years. Amazing. And, and you want to know something? God's got some great things coming down the road for us. So, so we, are, we are like, we, we're, kind of, we, we're just wrapping like phase one up. <laughs> and I think we're about to enter into phase two. Wait till you see. Wait till you see what God has yet for us here.